Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. We are constantly seeing the effects of vertical integration and government overreach in our cattle industry. The landscape of rural America is changing, and our communities are feeling those effects. We sat down with RCAP USA director, Kansas rancher, and former sale barn owner, Kyle Hemmer, to talk RFID tags, beef checkoff, MCOOL, and rural America. Well, let's get started. Thanks for being on with us today, Kyle. To start off, kind of give us a quick introduction. Tell us about yourself, your family, and your operation. Absolutely. So I grew up in Northwest Kansas, and I'm still in Northwest Kansas, which is a good thing. Uh, My family ran an auction barn for several years, and I purchased the sale barn from my dad eventually, but uh, we've always had cows in our operation. I bought my first cow, believe it or not, when I was in second grade. It was a nurse cow. Got to buy three baby calves, put on it, and it evolved from there to about 20 nurse cows and 100 baby calves. So I graduated from K-State. I worked for farm credit for two and a half years directly out of K-State, which was an awesome experience because that was the time of a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of troubled times for farmers. It would that have been like 1986 to 1988. And then uh, I returned to my family operation when I left farm credit. And uh, I've been here, I've been married for 34 years. My poor wife, we've got five kids. Uh, three girls, and then we have the two boys, and uh, I've got five grandsons, a couple more on the way. So as you can tell, we're pretty busy. But yeah, we, uh, yeah, we have a. So we still have cows. We're still very busy with the cows, and it's a family operation. Good deal. So you're the Region Six Director on the RCAP Board of Directors, and that region serves Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. So kind of tell us what drew you to RCAP and just your kind of history with the organization. Sure. So. I was looking for an organization that was represented more so by cow-calf and by the producer. And I definitely felt like our calf was the only choice out there for absolutely being represented to the uh, cow-calf band and the independent producer. So the other, the other thing was probably where they got their money and their funds. I mean, this is a producer organization that is funded strictly by producers and we're not taking any check off money and so forth, but, uh, That's the biggest thing I like about it is that it's producer oriented. So you bring an interesting perspective to our RCAF board um, because you were a longtime auction owner. And as you said, you purchased the barn from your dad. So how did you find yourself in the auction business and kind of what made you want to buy the barn from your dad, I guess? Well, that was pretty simple, actually. The winter of 92, 93 about killed me. I was working for my dad and I had cows and man, that was a very treacherous winter. And I was kind of left with the choice of saying, hey, dad, I need to do something different. I need to buy the sale barn from if you'll be willing to sell it to me. He was gracious enough to sell it to me. So I, between my wife and I, we own the sale barn for 27 years. I still have cows and uh, cow-calf operation and I background some cattle and so forth. But uh, I definitely owe a big thanks to my dad for, you know, selling me the operation because he definitely didn't have to do it at that time. He probably wasn't totally prepared to sell the sale barn to me but I was ready to run it and so he, he gave me the opportunity and I was very thankful for that. So during your time owning that sale barn what changes were happening to your barn and then in the industry in general? Oh my gosh so I've definitely seen 
the downhill from having so many buyers come to my sale barn to, I mean, I used to be able to sell feeder cattle to 10, 15, 20 different farmer feeders or feedlots. And I guarantee you right now, it's down to two to three people that'll sit around at the feed, at the sale barn and buy and buy cattle now for feedlot replacement cattle. We still have some guys that'll background some calves. There's not near as many of those. The other big thing that I'm seeing right now is, is there's not a lot of young people entering the business. There was, uh, maybe it's been four or five years ago, I think the government came out, did some, some beginner cattle loans to some young guys. And man, I, I saw some young guys crawling in the business and I was, you know, they were using government money to get started. That's okay. I was really excited to see some young people getting in the business, but man, I, I'm not seeing young guys get in the business right now. So the biggest thing is just watching the competitiveness, you know, be tougher because there's, there's just a lot less people to sell to. There's also on the, on the flip side of that, it seems like the producers are getting bigger. So you've got around here anyways, you've got guys that when they do sell out, there's other people that are, are buying the cows or, you know, renting the grass. And so they're getting bigger. So you're seeing some big, some bigger operations. The other thing that I saw uh, in, in my time was the, the coming of the video auction. So video auction started coming on, which created more competition for sale barns, which actually was pretty good. I mean, it made me hustle more and, and to get out, want to do more. So uh, that, that, that was good stuff. Actually, I, I enjoy the competitiveness of the business, trying to get the most for people's cattle. So Kyle, how does your experience in the auction industry shape your perspective on the big picture of what is happening in our cattle industry? Yeah, so it's, so it's very, it's very disappointing to me because as you're seeing some people quit, you're seeing other people expand in the feed yard business. And I mean, what's that tell you? I mean, you'd be, you'd have a blind eye not to know that some of these guys are getting some sweetheart deals because how can, how can one operation continue to expand and buy these cattle? You know, some people are going to try to blame it on these guys aren't as efficient or these guys aren't as great, you know, as good of producers, but I guarantee you it's because they're, it's on the other receiving end of the deal. They're getting sweetheart deals. So the, the other thing that I've seen is, is the packers and stack stockyards have not enforced the competitiveness of our business. They, they've kind of turned, turned the eye, look the other way, do whatever they, you know, they're just not enforcing some of the rules and regs that need to be done to uh, keep competitiveness in our business. So now um, it's no secret that RCAF stays really vigilant against the, the mandatory implementation of an RFID system in our cattle industry. And now we're seeing the USDA kind of renew their interest in implementing a mandatory RFID system. If we don't fight back and that goes through, how will that change the day-to-day -day operations at an auction yard? I would definitely foresee that to be a mess. The, between the paperwork, the trying to read tags, making sure cows have tags in their ears, so you're going to have costs associated with that, and and confidentiality. I mean, who's going to be in charge of the confidentiality of these numbers and and all these uh, tags and all these cattle? You know, we we don't you don't ever want to show your hand whether you're playing cards or whether you're in the cattle business. You don't want to show your hand to the to the competition. So. The confidentiality would be a big thing for me is, is to keep that in the producer's pocket. But uh, the biggest thing is probably going to be just, it's just going to be a mess. It'll be a paper, you know, I don't see what's wrong with what we're doing right now. The silver clips and the, and brucellosis tags for cows, 
you know, calves and yearlings can't move out of state without health certificates. I, I just don't, I don't get it. At the same time that they're trying to ram this down our throats, we're importing beef that we have no, no idea where some of that stuff's coming from. So sorry about that. So let's talk about it from a producer standpoint in the, in the cattle industry, the implementation of a mandatory RFID system what will that do for the American cattle producer, whether he own 10, 10 head of cows in his backyard or is, you know, running 2,000 head of mama cows in Wyoming in big country? Yeah, so I think a small producer might throw his hands up and quit. I mean, no more profitability than is in the business right now. If he's going to be stuck with the liability on his 10 head uh, and then the extra paperwork, extra cost. I mean, you've got some guys that are already beat down, you know, they've kind of had enough of that, but the larger producers, it's definitely going to be a cost thing. And again, the confidentiality thing. So. Do you think that either the sale barns, you know, the, where the, the transactions are taking place or the cattle producers have any extra labor out there to handle <laughs> doing one more thing that the government mandates. Man, that's that was the other thing back to the sale barn businesses. <laughs> this help got so tough to find. My wife and I found ourselves doing nearly all the work ourselves. Pretty tough on a marriage, you know. But yeah, you go to, that, that's the other thing about some of these bigger producers. It's definitely happened in the farming industry around here. Some of these guys have taken on so much farm ground that when it's time to, to harvest and so forth and they can't find people to get in, you know, get the trucks underneath them and so forth, they kind of had their belly full of this. And I would think that maybe the same thing could happen in the cattle business. The one thing I will say about the cattle business is, is that ranchers do go help each other out. So ranchers, that's the, the biggest and best thing that a rancher will do is he'll go help his neighbor. But if his neighbor's out of business, who's he gonna turn to then, so. Excellent thoughts, yes. So something else that you had to deal with in the auction barn um, industry was being the bad guy. You were the guy that had to take money from your neighbors, from your customers, um, from their paycheck to pay into that beef checkoff. What was the vibe and the opinion of the beef checkoff when you were having to do that in your auction barn? That's pretty simple. I think anybody that, well, taxation without representation was probably the biggest thing. A lot of people are like, I don't know any of these people that are on the board, on the Cattlemen's Beef Board. I don't know any of these people that are, are representing me on the checkoff. So, you know, taxation, I've always thought it was taxation without representation, especially when it's, when you're talking about MCOOL. I mean, we're important beef and yet they get the benefits of me donating my buck ahead. So taxation without representation was one thing, but I, the other thing is, is that Producers, you know, they all remember, I bet you guys don't remember this, but I do. I was actually, I think in about eighth grade when uh, the first vote for the checkoff came about, I was pretty excited. I thought it was a great thing. I definitely voted yes. I still remember going down to the, to the office with my dad, to the ASCS office and uh, voting yes. And the problem now is that we don't get a chance to vote every maybe four or five years to whether or not we want to keep the checkoff or, or, you know, so, so there again, we're not, we're not getting to, to, to vote our opinions. And the other thing is, is that you're, you're seeing 
no ads. I mean, I guess I feel like I don't see ads anymore. I'm Super Bowl ads, ads on TV for beef, beef it's what's for dinner. Where, where are the ads? Where, where are my, where's my dollar going? I'd like to see it. You don't have to tell me how good you're doing. Let me, let me see you on the TV. Let me see you. Let me hear you on the radio. So I, I for one, don't feel like I see ads or hear ads from my beef, beef checkoff money. And then the other thing I would definitely question is, why is per capita beef consumption going down if you're doing such a great job? You know, at the cell barn, people, people vote, whether you not like it or not, they vote with their dollar. If they don't like the job that I was doing at the cell barn, they took their cattle elsewhere. So not being able to vote or keep people, you know, hold them to the fire, they can get kind of kind of lax and kind of lazy and maybe and and so forth. So it make, it, make, it makes everybody hustle up a little bit more. You know, you bring up a good point talking about that decline in uh, per capita beef consumption. Something else that has declined greatly since the beef checkoff has come into play is the return of that retail dollar back to rural America, back to the the cattle producers who are investing in it. So, is it with I mean, so much has changed in the landscape of the cattle industry since 1985. Is it really the cattle producers' financial responsibility to advertise and market a product we don't get a financial return on anymore? You know, I'll bet everybody, including you, if you had MCOOL even, MCOOL would make you feel better about your dollar ahead checkoff going in there saying it's going to promote my beef, you know? So... Yeah, I have lots of problems with the beef checkoff, and in the same breath, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to see a beef checkoff, or I want to see some money going out to uh, to promote my product. But I want it to promote my product, not just a product. Yep. So a lot has changed in our industry since 1985, but we have been held hostage to a program we have to fund that doesn't seem to want to change with our industry needs, right? Oh man, I, can you refresh my memory? Is it 87,000 producers that, that USDA says we have? I and mean, we have to get a certain number of people to sign for a referendum on a vote. I, I have a real- I think it's, Yeah, I think it's more than that, except we had to get a specific portion and that's where the 80,000 came from, I think. So, so, the USDA, according to the 2017 census, which was what we were um, taxed with having to meet, had, I think, 870,000 producers. We needed 10% of those producers to sign the petition, so giving us a target of 87,000 producers, and you're right, it was, it was a tough hill to climb. I cannot imagine that there's 875,000 producers in America right now. I just... I. And, and if there is, I, I understand the confidentiality thing, <clears throat> but in the same breath, USDA could implement the procedure to do a referendum on a vote. You're I can, absolutely, see, them, yeah. I can see them handing those, those people's names and addresses to a third party like RCAF or NCBA. But I, you know, I, there's something built into the original checkoff that there was supposed to be a referendum every five or eight years. I can't remember what it was exactly, but where in the heck is that? Where is my USDA? What, what, you know, these guys, is, they act like they're working it. Well, they don't act like it. They are working against us. It seems like at every corner. Sure would be nice to vote. That's all I've got to say. 
Yep, you're right. And just to refresh all of our listeners, um, you know, familiarity with the Beef Promotion Act of 1985, it was specifically written that cattle producers were to be, um, you know, granted a occasional referendum, but it wasn't given a specific amount of years. So that's one thing. We are supposed to get a referendum, but when that will come, we don't know. The other thing is the the Secretary of Agriculture holds the magic wand that can deny or allow us that referendum. He can wake up on any given Monday and say, the cattle producers of America, it is time to give you a referendum, whether there is a petition or not. And so the USDA has that power, they have that authority, and they've continued to deny giving cattle producers that, um, really that right. The, I mean, the, the Beef Promotion Act says we have that right to that referendum 37 years later, we still don't have a vote. And we have overturned one, if not one and a half generations of cattle producers since 1985. Yeah, and I haven't done my homework, but let it be known that the beef checkoff is not the only checkoff that is having problems. I, I can't remember <laughs> the other two or three people that are getting taxed without representation, but they they would sure like to have another referendum of that on their on their product. I can't remember what it is exactly, but absolutely, there are other commodities that are fighting these um, kind of you know the same red tape, and they're locked into paying. Uh, their checkoff without receiving the representation they think that they are due. So that's absolutely right. You know, we're seeing a menu of different legislative reforms being offered. Which of those legislative reforms are meaningful and kind of on your radar and which of them are just kind of fluffy and make the lawmakers and lobbying groups feel good? Uh, it's pretty simple. So at the cell barn, I'm just a simple guy. I mean, I, I really feel like I'm a simple person. I'm transparent. I like the auction barn because it was simple. You bring the cattle in, what you see is what you get. Okay. It's right there in front of you. Uh, you bid what you want. There's no coercion. You do business and you go home. Okay. So for me, 5014 was a no brainer because 5014 was you buy 50% of your needed negotiated supply of, of cattle and pick them up within 14 days and that's it. We, uh, you know, we're, looks like we're gonna get something that I don't think is gonna, well, the time frame for one thing, if it, the Cattle Price Discovery Act, if it gets passed, the time frame of two years is just two more years down the road of kicking the can down the road. And, and then on top of that, you start talking about splitting up regions and, and different minimums of what the negotiated trade will be for each for each region wow i mean here i am saying that i would sure like for the government to do their job when when talking about packers and stalkers and so forth and in the same breath i'm telling you that sure would be nice to have 5014 the thing that i liked about 5014 again is that it was simple direct i think it would it would have been pretty easy to enforce everybody is playing by the same rules. When you start talking about different regions with different percentages and you're gonna turn it over to the government, it's gonna just be another mess. The biggest thing also for me is, so 5014 along hand in hand with MCOOL. MCOOL, again, direct, the consumer knows that there's a difference between American beef and other beef coming in from these other 23 countries. 
and they're getting a choice and, and I'm, I'm able to give them that choice because my cattle are all assumed of, of country of origin labeling of, of United States and all the others will, will be labeled that way, your way. So 5014 and MCOOL would have been a very powerful combination. I agree. Let's talk about MCOOL a little bit because one of the arguments that we sometimes um, have surface is, well, how can you implement MCOOL without having a mandatory RFID system? So Kyle, let's refresh listeners about um, cattle that are imported. We're only importing from two countries of live cattle and then beef that is imported and how we already know the origin of American cattle and beef. Yeah, that was the, that was the, when we did have country of origin labeling, I remember stamping the things on every one of our purchase sheets at the sale barn of U.S. origin and thus otherwise noted. So that was pretty simple. The uh, ability to, to label our product, I, to, to be honest, I mean, yeah, I mean, straightforward. I have no problem with RFID if you'll give me MCOOL. Some people, you know, the way that they're trying to jam the RFIDs down our, our throats right now, it's, it's more of a liberty issue and it's more of a, they're not going through the proper channels of government to get, to get this deal passed. But uh, if they were together, I, I wouldn't have any problem late, you know, here tagging my cattle as long as I had MCOOL to go along with it. That's my personal opinion. And, and that's, yeah, that's totally valid. Um, as it stands today, though, at, we've got our Mexican cattle have that M brand that come on them when they cross the border. The Canadian cattle have the CAN, the CAN brand come. So if your cattle are void of an M or a CAN brand on their hide, they're already presumed to be of domestic USA origin. And that is, that is our burden of proof that the American cattle producer already has on our side. And then as you and I know, when beef is imported into the US, it has its country of origin label on it. We are taking the, that label off at, yeah. um, when, it's in, when it's inspected. So it's got a label on it when it comes onto our soil and we're removing that label because we don't have a law to protect our, our marketplace. Correct, correct. Well, if we don't, um, what is the future of this industry if these reforms are not made and made rather quickly? Well, I think you're seeing it. In, <laughs> I was just watching an auction just 10 minutes before I got on with you guys. And uh, I mean, they just sold some steers that weighed 770 pounds for $183. I can promise you that if you were to go to, the, to buy all your inputs, and forward contract those cattle, you'd be buying into a $400 head loss. They're, you know, this is their way with the sweetheart deals, this is their way of squeezing out any more independent producers that are left in the fat cattle business. So the integration, a lot, some people already say it's already here. It's, you know, it's too late, it's, already, it's, it's done. And, and these, these tight numbers with as many producers that have gone out of business and with the drought too, the drought, the acceleration of the drought, this is gonna be some really wild, interesting times right now in, in the cattle business. And to watch those cattle bring that kind of money today, I was, I was, pretty, I was pretty flabbergasted, I'll be honest with you. And, and knowing who's bidding on those cattle and who's buying those cattle and who's not bidding on those cattle and who cannot buy those cattle, 
is there's quite a separation. You know, I'm in Nebraska, you're in Kansas. Um, what is the, the near future for the independent uh, cattle feeder, the farmer feeder in this game right now? Well, if you don't have a sweetheart deal, if you don't have a deal that, that I don't want to say bails you out, but definitely protects you, if you don't have a system that is going to keep you in the business, I mean, I guess maybe some of these guys maybe are going to take one last swing at it. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I don't see it because I don't, I don't see who it would be. I know some guys that would like to feed cattle. Sure, they, they'd love to feed some cattle, fatten some cattle. But COVID kind of taught them a little bit about who the Packers are going to take care of when times do get tough. I mean, they're going to take care of their suppliers. So then as we, we really are in a time where we are seeing the continued squeeze, the vertical integration of that feeding sector, where will that lead the cow-calf industry? Well, just because I think just because of sheer numbers right now, because so again, because so many people have exited the business, and I'm seeing it in the in the southeast where people do some hobby hobby cattle stuff. You know, they get to looking around, and they have to start paying 150 or 200 dollars a ton for hay, and they're they're a part of the country. That that hobby quickly becomes an expense and no fun. So I have a brother who lives in Louisiana, and he says he's seen a lot of cows come to town. People people are not you know. Let's face it, we all have hobbies, but when they get too expensive, we cut the hobby off. So between the continued very, very short supplies, I think, you're, again, you're just going to see a wild, wild cattle market. You're super active on Twitter. You are in the, you are in Kansas, where Kansas has been in the news a lot lately with all those cattle dying. What are you hearing from cattle producers, like in the comments or just in town? What's the tone of the industry in Kansas and what are you hearing? Well, right now in the big in the area that I'm at, and it's a, it's a big area that I'm talking to people is drought. I mean, we're these grass, two things. The grass condition is really tough and rough and feed supplies are super, super tight. I might be out of the cell barn business, but I've had a lot of people, my old customers call me looking for feed. And I'm like, oh, good luck. If you haven't carried over any feed, you're not going to find any feed right now. So you better get to hoping that all these guys that are, you know, planting this feed right now, you know, hope it produces because if it don't, I mean, for one thing, these 100 degree days that we're having, I'd say there's another two to three weeks left because people are harvesting their wheat right now and they're farmers first. They're gonna get their wheat out. And then they're gonna to go to their pastures here after the wheat harvest, they're gonna look around and they're gonna see their cows are going backwards. So these cows are gonna start coming to town, El Pronto. And you know, if it starts raining, I guess maybe people will try to hold on and maybe the, the grass is pretty short around here, it's pretty brown. But the biggest thing is the feed situation is super, super tight supply. So you're gonna see cattle moving. Well, I know down here in the Texas Panhandle, there's a lot of people who aren't even harvesting wheat this year. Like we're not, we don't have a wheat harvest because it didn't rain. And so I think that'll be hard on some of these smaller producers for sure. Uh, I, just, uh, I just listened to the radio last week on a topsoil, uh, sub, topsoil, subsoil moisture relativity and how, how many states are in, are like Texas was at 93% bad to very bad. New Mexico was even worse, I think. Colorado's tough. Western Kansas, Southwest Nebraska is horrid. I mean, there's some there's some really tough areas out here right now that 
there's going to be some cows move because I, I doubt that, you know, this is not the rainy season. We're just getting into the first July. This will not be the rainy season unless the dear Lord changes nope. something. Like but it's going to get rough. It's going to get tough. I, I'm, I'm included. I mean, I'm, I've got cows 50 miles west of me here that I'd say 10 more days, I'm going to get them. So you have been through a lot of these drought cycles and the drought right now, coupled with the market conditions and these crippling input costs, do you see America's cow herd rebuilding anytime soon? No way, no how, no, no. You know, people are talking about $2 calves, $2 calves, you know, 500 pounds calf at two bucks and that's on a steer. So $180 heifer, let's say. So even if you average 190, that's 950 bucks for a 500 pound calf. I ain't gonna cover too many of these expenses. Mm-mm. So yeah. That won't even cover your diesel for a week. I mean. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, people don't wanna talk much about food security as a national issue, but it sure as the heck should be because the amount of cows that are gonna come to town if something doesn't change in the next two, three, four weeks, people are going to look around and go, what is going on? You know, man, maybe hamburger will get cheap in the short supply or the short run, but in the long run, no. And actually we have been stuck in this liquidation pattern for two years. I mean, yeah, and it's, it's there's true. just no rebuilding and retention in sight. Correct. Yeah. I think the profitability would change that quite a bit. I mean, I would, I would be willing to pay 200, 250 bucks a ton for hay if my cows were profitable and mm-hmm. I was making some money and I, and I foreseen that, you know, I just need one more year to maybe get out of this drought. But when you have profitability in your hindsight for the last five years, that's been marginal at best. It's pretty easy to let go of those cows and say so long, so long darlings. Because at some point producers like you know, many of us have to fill in the potholes on our past balance sheets. And we're not looking to, to, you know, make money going forward. We're looking to try and clean up, you know, some lost equity from the last few years and um, some, some lost money there. And so it's, it's a very serious issue that, um, you know, it, it gets exciting, you know, days like today when, You see the market reports, these yearlings and these wean fall calves just going for the moon. Um, But we've got a lot of lost equity over the last couple of years that just we can't survive if we don't get these input costs under control. That is the truth. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that is us as ranchers, we always are like, oh, next year we'll make up for it. Next year, you know, we won't have drought. And that big ag plays into that of, I think Karina and I talked about this on the last podcast, that they're like, oh, we're going to have a great fall. Well, at some point <laughs> we have to have more than just, oh, next year, because there's not going to be a next year. You're pretty young to catch on to the next year, next year phase. Good job. I hate to say this, but, you know, as, as tempting as this might be, and I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here, but, but e- even if the cattle business does get good, you know, there's another there's the economic factor of, of a recession that falls in here that, you know, people, people, I, I have found anyways, all my friends are this way. They'd rather drive than eat a steak. I mean, they'll, they'll give up food before they'll give up taking their car rides to go see their friends or what have you. So I hope a recession doesn't play in here that people start picking and choosing and, and decide to not pick, you know, meat. And, and decide that, you know, I just hope we don't, hope we don't run into a problem here. Yeah. 
So as we've talked about, our industry is just continuously getting harder and harder to stay in the fight and to stay in business. So what keeps you engaged and what keeps you like, I don't know, involved in the fight, I guess I would say. Well, I've been in this business all my life. So I hate to see it go the way it's gone. And I sure would like to see it reverse and do something different. I'd like to see more producers. It's, it's fun to watch young guys sell their first calf crop. I saw a young guy sell his first calf crop this last fall. Some big old buckskin colored Charlet Red Angus cross calves. They were fantastic calves. I sent him a text saying, wow, you, you know, you did an outstanding job there. And you know, he's super excited. Sure would be nice to see him stay in the business and keep that enthusiasm for our business and, 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 and want to stay in the business and hope that he can stay in the business. Because let's face it, cattle are fun. I mean, to have cows is, is fun. It's, uh, it's a great outdoor sport. It could be a sporting event of some kind. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but ca cows are fun. I mean, they, and it's family fun. I watch Karina. I watch other families spend time together with their cattle. They're out there working together. Sure would be nice to keep profitability in the business so we can all stay in it together. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that um, with the loss of America's cow herd, we lose our greatest resource and that's the human resource. And it's really hard to, it's going to be really difficult to recapture that. Very much so. And, and one, one of the sad things to watch, I mean, I'm seeing it today, bred cows, thousand dollars, you know, pretty, pretty good bred cows, thousand bucks. And you're selling yearlings. We're 180 something weighing in the sevens and eights and you're selling $2 pound calves. Where, where's our enthusiasm? I mean, I realize all the costs, but you know, you can do a lot of things with cattle to try to string them out, to try to make them make money. But where, where's the enthusiasm? Where's it? Where's all the young guys at, you know, with a little bit of money or a little bit of, is you just, you're not, you're not seeing that enthusiasm carry over into, into the business. Yep. So before we switch over a little bit to a little bit more positive notes, is there anything that you have to add on industry talk? <laughs> not that I can think of. So other than the cell barn business, you know, it was really tough for me to sell my business. I'll be honest with you. I had three, three daughters that are married to some fantastic guys. They have some great jobs. I mean, this, I mean, who the heck gets jobs where your wife gets pregnant, has a baby, and you get to spend the next whatever, two or three weeks with your wife and get paid to do it? Maternity leave for these husbands is amazing. So it's hard to come, it's hard for me to want to compete with what they're making, what they're doing, their time off, you know, their family time and so forth. And here I am talking about family time. I mean, I'm telling you what health insurance, so forth. I could go on and on, but it, they've married well. Okay. So they've, they've done well. My two young boys, they want to change the world in a different way. And it's not the cattle business. So I, and I respect them for that. So it was really tough for me to sell the cell barn and that competitiveness. I, I miss, I'm, I'm almost like Donald Trump. I miss the art of the deal. You know what I'm saying? I miss, I missed some of those deals. I miss the competitiveness and I miss I miss a little bit of that, but in the same breath, I have spent a lot of quality family time with my grandkids, so. You know, that brings me to another question, Kyle, that we, we haven't really talked a lot about on this podcast, but as we're watching an aging producer population, like you said, we're losing these young people going off to find better jobs and you can't really blame them. 
How is that changing the face of your rural community of Oakley, Kansas and your surrounding communities? Yeah, so I am watching some older guys get out of the business because you know they got bad knees, bad hips, it's just time. And they are in the same boat as what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm a little bit younger than they are, some of these guys, but they're looking around and, and all of their kids or grandkids, the grandkids don't know anything about the cattle, so they have no interest in it. And their kids have moved maybe and taken jobs in the cities and so forth. So I'm watching them sell their cows and I am watching these cows and, and like I say, and the grass or the farm ground that goes with it, go to some of these bigger operators, which I have no problem with. I mean, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to pick it up. So again, though, you're dealing with less people. You know, it's, it's one thing to have less buyers, but it's also one thing to have less sellers too. You've got less families taking a trip to town to get groceries at your local grocery store. You've got less, um, you know, in the classroom, <laughs> less kids in the classroom, less moms and kids going to town to get a haircut. There is a trickle down effect to our rural communities. When the cows leave the land, the people leave the land. Absolutely. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but I'm going to tell you something about a big producer and, and, and I don't care what business you're in. Big producers like to flex their muscles and they like to try to get the deal. I mean, you know, they want a better deal. They can get better deals maybe from people outside the community or they can get better deals from people that are not vested into the community. So what I'm saying there is that they go, they'll drive 150 miles away to go get cheaper, whatever it is. But yet the people back in their hometown, you know, those are the people that do. They, they have the kids down in the school system with their kids. But more importantly, they're the ones that are supporting these community programs and things that you're trying to do to keep the kids, you know, active and so forth. So, so, so just a, a quick side note, Oakley actually, my hometown here has a theater and it's run by the high school kids as a class through the high school. And it's pretty sad actually, because, well, you know, a little bit of it is they haven't come out with a lot of great movies either, but it's getting really tough to get people to go to the movies because there ain't nobody in town anymore. Yeah. We're, we're losing, we're losing some population just like everybody else. Shifting gears. So one of my favorite events of the year is coming up our 2022 national convention. And Kyle, I know I always enjoy hanging out with you and Barb and catching up. So tell our listeners, why should people come to convention? First and foremost, for me, the convention is you get to hang around with people that are like-minded of you in the business. Okay. They desire all the things that you desire in the business to stay in the business, profitability. You know, they, they go through the same struggles as you do during the year. It's, it's, it's fun to talk to people about droughts and maybe they had a super bumper year and they sold their kids for this, so forth. So the, so the camaraderie of, of the convention is first and foremost for me. Then on the, on the serious side note, there's the people, the, the people that are brought in to, de, to do the speakers. Speakers are fantastic. I mean. I'm sure you guys have some great ones again this year. Uh, I've had some favorites. I mean, the, that professor last year with the antitrust, I mean, that guy was fascinating. I mean, <laughs> you really, I can't believe I stood, sat still that good and listened to him that well. I didn't do that in high school, but he, that guy was fantastic. 
Yep, he was one of my favorites too. Yeah, we just released our speakers this morning, actually, um, in a press release. And so we've got some good ones. We've got Mary Hendrickson, who works alongside Professor Horton in a lot of different aspects. And so she should be really interesting. Okay, anything else to add before we're, we close out? I have none. Okay. <laughs> okay, so then the last question, we always ask our podcast guests. What is your favorite cut of beef and how do you prepare it? Oh, pardon me. So that's pretty easy. At Christmas and Easter, I am the prime rib king. <laughs> so I'm, um, I don't want to brag about my cooking too much because you guys are going to try and make me do it for you sometimes, but I can make a pretty fantastic prime rib. And it all starts with, you know, a good prime rib. But the other thing I can do is I have found me somebody who's, is butchering, is processing some fantastic fat cattle. And I mean, the steaks that I've had, everybody in my family knows that if you want a good steak, you go to Kyle's house. So, so the ribeye and the strip and me doing the cooking can't be beat. I feel like without saying this is a challenge, this is a challenge to our president, Brett Kenzie, who yeah. also claimed to be the prime rib king, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so I, I feel, I feel a little challenged. A little tension. <laughs> and Jacob and I can be the, the yeah, we'll be the judges. <laughs> At convention, we'll have a cook-off. <laughs> I'll bring the pie. You guys yeah. bring the prime rib. I'll bring some sides. It'll be great. <laughs> do you guys like a little horseradish sauce with your prime rib? Yes, I do. I love a lot of horseradish. <laughs> I'm a shoe in for this one. Okay. I'm, I'll be ready for the competition. <laughs> Okay, it's happening. We got to tell Brett. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Kyle. We appreciate all of your insights and all the work you've done on behalf of the cattle industry. Kyle brought up some fantastic points on some of the major issues cattle producers are facing today. Stay involved and stay educated on what is happening in your industry. For more information regarding all the issues we talked about today, please visit the RCAP USA website. Stay engaged in the conversation by connecting with us on social media at RCAPUSA on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAPUSA Roundup. To learn more about RCAPUSA, visit our website, www.r-capusa.com.